Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Best Beach Podcast. We're back. I'm your host, Mike Pacquiao, and today I am joined by my British slash French friend, Mark LaRoust. I got that right, correct? You did get that right. Well done, Mike. (laughs) Mark is an accomplished speaker and a former student of mine. Uh, Mark is on a mission to help entrepreneurs and business leaders impact the world with their story. He's a best-selling author, award-winning podcaster, and sought-after speaker at industry conferences and Fortune 500 companies like... Little-known companies like L'Oreal, Google, Method, eCover. His TEDx talk has been watched over a million times, and his work has appeared in Forbes, The Wall Street Journal, The Guardian. But here's what's really cool. Mark previously served as the country manager at the Movember Foundation. Y'all have seen the Movember Foundation. The month of November, people wear mustaches unironically. Along the way, he helped raise 2.8 million euros for men's health, inspired 110,000 fundraisers to take part, won multiple awards along the way. So this is an accomplished fellow. Today, we're going to talk about his speaking career, and we're going to talk about his new book, Glow in the Dark, How Sharing Your Personal Story Can Transform Your Business and Change Your Life. So we're going to talk about Mark's speaking career. We're going to talk about his book. We're going to talk about how personal stories relate to speaking. And somewhere along the lines, Mark will tell us the story of how he basically broke the internet on launch day. Uh, Mark, every podcast guest, this is like celebrity. I don't know if you have Wheel of Fortune in the UK. but uh, Well, yeah, I think we've got some version of it. It definitely rings a bell. Okay. Like when the celebrities are on, people who don't need money, they play for a charity. We do that on the podcast too. So what charity are we... What charity are we playing for today? So I actually love to uh, support a charity from a friend who contacted me who lives in Turkey, Emmy, um, following the disaster that happened actually yesterday in the middle of the night um, between Syria and Turkey. And it's a, it's a fund and it's an appeal to help out for the victims and getting rid of the rubble, trying to save lives and help those who are now fi- facing the coldest winter. So I'd love, I'd love that. It's uh, from a TPF fund. Okay. So how would uh, someone listening, how do, how do they... Like what oh, I'll, I'll, put, I'll, I'll send you the link. It'll be in the show note. Um, now you're dictating us in the show notes. Okay, cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's called the TPF fund. Is that what you said? Well, it's because it's a long link. She basically okay. just WhatsApp me the link. She said like, this is a, this is a trusted kind of local charity that they're doing some really great work. Can you help support? And she gave me a link. So unfortunately okay. that, that's what I've got for now. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Awesome. And as but a... if you're listening to this and you're like, Mark, what was that? That just DM me. You know, contact on LinkedIn. <laughs> we'll figure it out. It's for a good cause. <laughs> um, yeah, we're, we're recording this in early February, and that was that was a few days ago. I had a friend yeah. who was actually in Turkey at the time. Fascinating story. I mean, I just saw him post on Instagram, but he said, woke up in the middle of the night, totally freaked out, couldn't understand what was happening. He had mm. to Google it. So just it's like a fascinating thing, Googling in the middle of an earthquake. But yeah, yeah, it's. No, it's tra- I mean, it's, it's biblical proportion. It's like, mm-hmm. it's, it's tragic. It's like, can't, but the tally of numbers will keep on coming. So that's, yeah, that's been tough. And especially when, you know, you've got you know, people on the ground and getting people kind of contact you saying that, you know, lost close ones. So yeah, it's, it's been tough. So I'd love, I'd love to support. I appreciate, I appreciate you and, and, uh, and I'll match whatever donation you make. Okay. It's 50 American dollars. That's, I will match that. Okay. And everybody else match that too. All right, Mark, let's talk speaking career. You gave your TEDx talk 2017, I believe. That's right. Uh, anybody who is an artist looks back at their old work and says, ooh, <laughs> I wish I'd done that differently or or, may, or maybe like it was good, but I, I would approach it different. So I'm, well, why don't you start by, so the talk is called What They Don't Tell You About Entrepreneurship. Mm. Not everybody listening has seen the talk, of course. Yeah. What's What's the quick summary of what the talk is about? I think... The quick summary of the talk, and, and and I guess there's like a short backstory to it, is that originally when I was invited in December 2016 to go and speak on the TEDx Cardiff stage, it's one of the biggest kind of, well, one of the bigger stages in the UK of, te- of TEDx is, and that was going to be in April. I started off on a very different path. So I started preparing a different talk. And at the time, I can't really remember. I think the talk's premise was something like, what you seek is clarity, but what you need is action or something like that or trust no sorry what you seek is clarity but what you need is trust that was like my Hmm. through line that was kind of like my napkin kind of message i was like yes and i went off and i started i took five months to kind of prepare this talk researching it you know interviewing people writing it agonizing over it 
And I want to say maybe 21 days before the actual event, I decided to go and meet up a friend in London, a different friend every day for 21 days to A, reconnect with an old friend, B, discover a new place of London and C, get to practice my talk because I really believed in this. You know, it sharpens as you share. Um, And I want to say within like the three or four first times I shared that talk, I had a nudge that kind of said, this talk sucks. But Mm. I I wasn't quite sure because if you've ever gone through the process of sharing unfinished material with people and everyone's got an opinion, everyone's giving you feedback. So I kept on doubting myself and doubting myself. And in the end, I think it was maybe like 10 days out. I remember just sitting there giving this talk and a friend of mine just looked at me kind of like, yeah, it's kind of okay. What's that thing about three-headed dragons? I don't know. I came up with some metaphor for three-headed dragons. I still to this day have no idea what I was talking about. And um, <laughs> and I felt awful. And literally, I think it was just under just under 10 days over a week. I had some of the enthusiasm to do it one more time, to give it to Alex, Alex Mary, a friend of mine. And um, and I gave him my talk. And, we, and he made me do it like in public in, in the Hyde Park corner, which is a very famous place in London where anybody can talk as long yeah, as you're... Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, as long as you're on a soapbox. Um, and his face just looked like I, I'd stolen the jam out of his donut. You know, he he just looked like... And I, and, and I said, look, before you give me feedback, there's this other idea I've been wanting to talk about. It's I don't know if it's even a good idea, but it's something that I feel is so needed. And I kind of talked about this realization I had of when I was in full employment and I dreamt to become an entrepreneur, I had this glorified image of what being an entrepreneur would be like. I, I thought that everything would be easy, that I would make money easy, that life would be good. You know, like I just had this aspirational dream of what being an entrepreneur was. And and it was a real reality check when I actually quit my full-time job at the Movember Foundation, which I love to kind of pursue my own dream of starting my own company. And it was really tough. Like I remember sitting one day on my floor in my flat in South London, crying. I was thinking like, how am I going to pay my mortgage this month? Like, what was I thinking? You know, no one tells you this. Like you don't see that on Instagram, right. people snotting, you know, like on their floor going like, oh, I'm going to pay my mortgage. What are your dreams? Yeah. Like you just don't see that. It's kind of like, do what you love and love what you do. And you know, but if you find what you love, you'll never work another day. Like it was just all this stuff that I felt was so prolific online. And I felt we were giving a kind of almost like a false image and everybody was buying into this kind of weird lie. So I, he looked at me and he said, that's the talk. That's what you need to talk about. But I had a week to prepare it. So Mike, I kid you not when I tell you like I didn't sleep for probably six nights. I had to redraft a whole new talk. I was pacing up and down the train on my way to Cardiff with my pregnant partner at the time and uh, with our first, with our first kid. And I remember being at Cardiff the night before, just stressing out, panicking, trying to remember, like reading the words and just kind of like, I, I'm not gonna be able to do this. And Judy took my paper and threw it and said, you're the talk. Hmm. You're not the words, you're the talk. You like connect with the audience, look at them, tell them what you what you feel, what you want for them. And and it'll, and it'll flow from there. And And so on the day, I remember it was really awkward. I don't think I've told this a lot, but what was really awkward is that I was gonna go up there and make a parody almost of, of like entrepreneurship. Um, and there's a whole other story of how that came to be, if one you want to find out. But um, the talk before me were these two two women who'd started a company and they were basically telling the audience, like, quit your job and, and start your dream. It's amazing. <laughs> and I was like, this is going to be so awkward because I'm going to go up on there and I'm basically going to tell you, like, actually starting your business is the worst thing you're going to do for your mental health. Like, the chances of you going through some real tough times are, like, nine, nine, nine chances out of ten, right? Like, most companies fail. The... I talk about studies from Dr. Freeman who talked about like the likelihood of entrepreneurship being linked to mental health issues, like all this. And the whole gist of the talks, I mean, the first part's like a bit of a comedy. So if you go and look at it, even if you look at the first few minutes, it's a bit of a parody about like the kind of the millennial, you know, social media entrepreneur kind of like, you know, I wake up at 4am and I'm visualizing my dreams. Like I do this kind of sketch and it went down well. And then I talk about the real depth. I was like, actually, no, why do we want to start a business when we all know we're going to fail? Like most of us, we know it's going to be hard. So, so why do we do it? And I go into the heart of it, which is my belief that we all have a need for a sense of purpose and a sense of meaning beyond ourselves. And entrepreneurship could be one of the ways to express that, but it's not the only way. Like you don't have to quit your job to feel that. You can do that working in an organization whose value you you, you believe in and whose mission you want to be part of and whose story you want to see unfold. So that was kind of the talk. Um, and I'm so glad I, I gave that talk because 
you know, it went on and did pretty well. And it's been viewed by a bunch of, I still get randomly messages from people like five years on. Is it five years on? Yeah, five years on. No. Yeah, yeah five years on. Is it? No, six years on. More than five. Six yeah. years on. Six years on. You can see I'm dyslexic and I'm really bad at maths. <laughs> um, so yeah, six years on, I still get, I still get messages from it. So that, I hope that answers the question as, as to what the talk was about. Well, yeah, um, let me unpack that for a yeah, second, because there's, yeah. there's some great stuff in there for people to hear. First of all, the courage to change topics that close mm. is, it would have been a lot easier to not do that. Running, I had that, I had, I had that choice. Like if, you yeah. know, I talk about this in my book, I really, at that point I said, do I just go with something? Because what I realized, and, and, and just need to say this one point, what I realized was that the talk about what you think you need is clarity, what you need is trust had nothing to do with me. There was no, mm. I, I wasn't exposing myself in any way. I wasn't mm. putting myself on the line. I wasn't being vulnerable or whatever you want to fill in the gap, authentic. The other story was really scary because I had built up this persona of this person who was like doing great online, but in reality, I was having a really tough time. I wasn't, I was telling my friends I was too busy to go out, but it, it's just because I was too scared that if I wasn't behind my emails, I'd miss an opportunity to make a sale, you know? So I really had to make that decision of do I expose myself for the sake of my message or do I play it safe for the sake of my safety? That's so good. I one of the things so Mark Mark took my speech club cohort in 2022. Mm. I think I think the thing that people probably remember the best about you is your willingness to have a lot of ideas, to cull the mm. ideas, to freak out a little bit as you were culling the ideas because you're you're thinking to yourself, no, this is a good idea. How can I get rid of it? Yeah. How did you get it down to 15 or 17 minutes? That was that was the hardest thing. Mm -hmm. You know, my my partner, Julie, she's more from an academic research kind of background. Like she did a, a neuroscience master's degrees at Oxford University, and she was on course for like a fully funded kind of PhD. But she decided to escape the labs to go and... Anyway, that's another story. But... um. And she told me, she said, this is going to be hell for you. Just so you know, like you're going to have to have a real structure because I'm not someone who's structured. I'm not someone who's before TEDx, Mike, actually, I used to wing all my talks, all of them. I never used to write my talks down. I never used to time my talks. I never used to, you know, I would just wing it and get away with it. Um, well, I thought I did. And then, and then obviously you've only got between what, 15 to 17 minutes, I think it was, or I forgot what the time was at the time. Um, and look, it was brutal especially with that such a short amount of time, it was really brutal because I had to go, the way I did it was like almost like, you know, the kill your darlings. Have you heard that expression yeah. before? Yeah. So it's kind of, I had to go every time, is this necessary? Is this vital? If it's not, I've got to cut it. And I kept on doing that until I kind of got to a solid, I'd say 16 minute when I was reading it out loud, 15 to 16 minutes, because I knew it would take a bit longer, especially if there's a pause of someone's laughing, you know, <laughs> you've got to put in your talk, like pause yeah. in case someone's laughs or awkwardly pause, you know, whatever. Um, so it, it just honestly practicing recording myself and listening back to it. That's kind of like the accelerated process I did to kind of see where was I, where was I confusing myself? Where was I adding things that were unnecessary? Where were, you know, that's kind of how I, I did it. And look, it's not, it's not perfect, but it's, uh, it, at that time, it was as best as I was going to get it. So one to 10, how nervous were you? You're about to, you're about to go on stage. They're going to introduce you. How nervous are you? One to 10. Yeah. And to give context to people, like I didn't know what nervous was before. Mm. Like I've been on stages since I'm three or four years old. Like I've, taken to stage like Dr. Water and my mom used to be a school school teacher and she used to run school plays like Mids, you know, Midsummer's Night Dreams and uh, West Side Story and all this kind of stuff and she used to put me as a prop in the back because she had to do something with a kid right during like rehearsals so I'd be like a bush or I'd be like a dancing kind of weirdo at the back or like a puppet so I've always been on stage and I never understood people getting stage fright or like being afraid like you know we've talked about this before <laughs> you've got this you've got this great joke which is like you know most people say They'd rather be buried alive than that. But no one on the deathbed goes, at least I'm not public speaking. I'm not speaking <laughs> yeah, in public, yeah. which is one of my favorite jokes of yours. Um, but it, it was, I was, it was, I was nervous because I was facing one of the most fundamental fears I had, which was the world's going to find out that I'm full of SHIT, mm. you know, like I'm, that I'm, that I'm a fraud, that it, that's, I was so afraid of being exposed and, 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 I knew 
the potential this talk had. Like not all, by the way, not all TEDx talks end up on the TEDx right. YouTube channel. That's number one. And not all TEDx talk do a million views, right? Just to put a caveat on that. But I knew that the potential platform of my talk could be seen by so many people. So the, the risk of my brand, my reputation, the impact, the message was really high. And I really self-imposed a lot of, a lot of stress. So I remember, I can tell you now, I can remember it. I'm on the side of the stage. And in my pocket, I have a token that Julie gave me. And it had written on it, like, because uh, our daughter was obviously, she was pregnant with our daughter at the time. It was something like, we're both rooting for you. Mm. You know, and I just remember, can, like, I just remember saying that, you know, because she gave it to me thinking, saying, when you're going to be on the side of the stage and you just remember this, we, we, at least you've got two fans in the room, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you, have a, a, you have every fan in the room. This is what I always tell people. Nobody in the room was saying, oh, I hope Mark is boring. I yeah. Hope, yeah. 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 But, you know, it's the, the stories, like, it was 400 people, right? And the room is packed. Um and I remember the moment I walked on stage, because what you've got to understand is, like, as I told you, I practiced even that, that, 10, that 10 days I had to do the new talk. I practiced it a couple of times. I've, I've got to give shout out to a friend called Amrish Shah, who when I practiced the original talk of, um, of uh, what most people don't tell you about entrepreneurship, he said, dude, can I be honest? Like, yeah, he's like, this is boring compared to what you can do. You've got so much more range. Because he saw me at uni in the last play I ever did in my first year at university. And it was like a bit like this comedy kind of role. I was a bit of a buffoon. And he said, you, you can really exaggerate the, um, the, the kind of like the entrepreneur parody, just really go big. And so I practiced that with a few people. Nobody laughed. You know, when I, you know, when I was doing like, you know, I wake up at 4 a.m. and I, nobody was laughing when I was practicing it. So when I got on stage and Judy says this still to this day, when I got on stage and I delivered that first line, and people got that it was a joke and people started laughing. Judy breathed and she's like, okay, he's going to be all right. Yeah, and I just thought, okay, now we're on, now we're on, now we're on a roll. You know, then, then it was kind of like, just, just roll with it. So compare that audience to you're speaking at Google or L'Oreal yeah. or any of these impressive companies. Mm -hmm. What's a more nerve wracking audience? Or let me, let me rephrase that. What's the toughest audience for you? I can tell you the, you can the toughest having. audience I've ever had was Google. Straight up, I'll tell you what. Like, I get invited. <laughs> so I get invited, right? Like this, this, like this um, contact at Google Consult. Like, can you come and give a talk? Um, it'd be great if you could come on on Friday. They have this thing. They used to at least call TGI T Thank God it's Friday. And they used to have uh, pizzas and uh, and uh, and like beers and champagne and for like all the employees, right? That you could come after work and just hang out in the canteen area. And there'd be food and there'd be drinks and it's just like a social thing. And so they tell me like, yeah, it's gonna be great. We've told everybody you're coming. You can give a talk. We're gonna put up a pop-up um, flip like flip chart and and you know like a projector and you can put your slides and it's gonna be great. I'm like yeah, 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 okay. I'm Google. You know my ego is like yeah, I'm gonna talk at Google. Yeah, and I rock up <laughs> and I rock up and I stand up there with my clicker and Mike like. No one cares. Everyone's just <laughs> drinking beer and having champagne, eating pizzas. And there's two dudes, two dudes holding like some kind of like beer in their hands, looking at me. And I'm giving my talk as if it's a full room. <laughs> and there's only two people listening. And I'm in my head and, I get, and I'm making jokes like tough crowd. Like, how's it going, guys? Like, it's, uh, you know, where, where do you come here often? It was just, uh, and I just went through the whole talk. It was like a 45 minute keynote. I went through the whole thing with two people listening and everybody else distracted. And, that was the hardest. I would say that it was the hard, but it was also, it was really good for me to learn, you know, about ego, my own ego, because it was kind of like, well, there's two people listening. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to talk to mm. these two people who made the effort. And it was so distracting the noise and people not paying yeah. attention because your ego goes like, I'm important. And what I'm saying is important and you should be listening to me. And it's rude. And all this stuff was flaring up at the same time, but at the same, you know, I'm here for a job and, 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 you know, they brought me in and, um, I would say from an audience perspective, that was the hardest. And then I've been in situations where I walked into a pretty toxic working culture and I wasn't really brief properly. Yeah. And I walk in there and I kind of give this talk and at the end, everyone's got their arms crossed and I kind of go, Hey, I'm just sensing that there's something in the room here that I'm like picking up. Like, is it something I said? Or, you know, and they said, and then they went off and like using that space to kind of vent about their managers and leadership. And it got like, I held the space. We had a good conversation and stuff, but that, 
that was one of the situations where since then I've refused to give talks in companies where I don't have a conversation with the leadership and with people, you know, around the organization to get a better understanding of what the culture is. Yeah, but hats off to you for having the audacity to just press pause on the presentation and say, what's what's really going on here? Mm. That's not an easy thing to do. Yeah, but it was there was clearly like, you know, especially if you've been doing it for a while. And I also run workshops and facilitate workshops. Like I said, I was, I was kind of, I'm kind of comfortable in front of a room in a way. And I was just like, this, there's something like, I just thought this is weird. There's something like, I'm not, yeah. it, it's not normal, right? You've always have a few people, especially when you go into companies and people in the room are told they should assist you. They should attend this workshop on like soft skills or whatever it is that, you know, and, uh, that was different. It was, there was clearly something in the space that was, that was kind of keeping people stuck and we just addressed it we had a good chat and then i gave some feedback to the company and and uh, yeah look they haven't booked me back it's, since but gosh that's so interesting i remember when i was at duarte every once in a while i would do a training for a company and, and i felt like i was training people for their next job at another company right <laughs> where, where they're like yeah we can't do that yeah the culture doesn't say yes to that yeah, yeah. i tried to do that before it's fascinating yeah it, it, i mean you know we could jam about this for for hours but i've i've loved actually going into companies and 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 talk about you know quote unquote people talk about high performing cultures they used to call it high caring cultures like how do we care about the person next to each other and stuff but it's i'll i'll say this now and i say this i used to say this every client like i'm going to i'm going to make an assessment about your culture not based on the words that are written on your wall or the little you know coffee mats that you've got or what you've told your people to, to tell me what the values are. I'm going to look at your three places in your company. They'll tell me more about your culture than anything else that you could try and, and throw my way. That's your, your kitchen, your boardroom, and your bathroom. Those three places will tell me more about your culture than pretty much anything else. Because the way that you take care of your communal areas shows me, do you respect the place you work at? Do you respect your colleagues? Do you treat each other with kindness? Um, and, and so far, it's proven, it's proven pretty accurate. Well, and there's something really great there because you're giving a visual of three places they can picture. Yeah. So instead of it being abstract, that's one of the yeah. reasons why that works. Yeah. All right, Mark, let's talk about your book. Let's talk about telling personal stories. Mm. So again, the, blue, the book is called Glow in the Dark, How Sharing Your Personal Story Can Transform Your Business and Change Your Life. Mm. Mm. You already looped in how that affected your TED Talk and you're like, yeah, mm. that was me out there. So it is. it can be nerve wracking. Mm-hmm. What are some uh, what are some tips as to when I should tell my personal story? But I, I mean, I shouldn't always be doing that. I'm not in the mm. middle of some briefing, probably. When, when should I tell my personal story? When should I not? Yeah, good question. So you know, I talk about in the book the kind of the the book. I wanted to divide the book into two parts. The first part is very much about let me explain to you why storytelling is one of the most powerful tools to communicate an idea or a message or trying to get people to buy into what you're saying, selling or sharing. Um, that's very much kind of get people who are still need to get that convincing. Then I talk about examples of, of leaders and, 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 and founders who've used parts of their story or parts of their personal story to, to connect and engage with their audience and build a kind of community and, 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 a, and a raving brand. Um, and then the second part is I tell you kind of how to do it. Um, and I think one of the, you know, I, came up with like these 10 what I call story um, story blockers, which are like the 10 excuses that we tell ourselves as to why we shouldn't be telling our stories. And that kind of feeds into the answer of your question, which is in which context should I not be sharing, you know, part of myself or part of my personal story. So I kind of break down in the book, I'm not going to go through them all of them, but I break down in the book, the different types of stories we hold and we have. And for example, one of them is I call them the open wound stories. Mm. So the open wound stories are stories that we are still in the middle of processing and unpacking and really wrapping our heads around what they mean, what the gift and lessons of them, no matter how hard and horrible they may be. Um, they're really vulnerable. They uh, feel raw. Um, and those stories are really to be um, treated with care. And what I would say for people who are hesitating is like the best places to share those kind of stories are in a really safe and secure place, such as with a therapist or a psychologist or a professional coach or a very trusted friend who you have utmost intimacy and trust with. Because yes, they have the most potent ability to connect with an audience, but I think people can sometimes 
and I, I don't want to say this, share them almost too soon, but because they, they haven't fully processed what the message is. Right. Like they haven't turned their mess into a message, if that makes sense. They're still in the middle of the mess and they use it as a way to connect, but there isn't resolution for the audience as to like, but what was the lesson in that? Or what can I take away from that? Right. Because my whole, my whole gist in the book is like your story is about you, but it's not for you. Right. It's kind of like someone, someone wake up this morning needing to hear your story to not feel alone and mm. have a sense of hope about the future. So cases where you shouldn't be sharing your personal stories, it's again, I use this metric, which I share in the book. And when you, when you go through the book, you also get access to like the downloadable tools and frameworks for it. But you can actually reverse engineer what stories you should pick. Okay. So depending on which context you're in, depending on what platform you're on, depending on what audience you're speaking to, what message you want to land, those are like the four metrics I talk about. You can pick almost like a vending machine. Like if you know you've traveled to the airport a bit as well. So when you go to like the airport and you're like, I really shouldn't get that bag of crisp, but I am. And you go for like B12 or 616, you know, it's the same principle with our stories. Parts of our stories will be relevant for different audiences, message and context and platforms. And so you've got to be really clear about what your message is. So you said, you know, maybe your personal story is not important in a brief. Totally. Maybe not your full origin story probably wouldn't be appropriate, but you might want to give some context to why this project matters to you, right? Maybe there's a, there's a story that you can link in terms of like you were part of a team, maybe in another company or in this current company, and you saw this thing happen and affect the team in such a way that you wanted to do something about it. And that's why you're launching this, this brief, right? Or that's why you want to launch this, this, this product or service. So I think there's always ways that you can use stories to connect with people. It doesn't necessarily have to be like an open wound. Um, because what happens is that when you heal these open wounds and you're over the, over the kind of mess of them, then they're really potent. Like you, we see it with a lot of thought leaders, and a lot of people who, you know, we look up into in our industry, you know, they, they often have this ability to talk about their past, their stories in a very humble and honest way, but they don't do it for like likes or, or attention or, or a pity party, but rather like, Hey, I know what you're going through, but there's hope at the end of this tunnel. And let me tell you why and how does that make sense? Yeah. So another question, you mentioned open wound stories. Yeah. So I assume a closed wound story is I, I had this traumatic thing happen, but I'm, I'm, it's a scar. Yeah. You took, you talk, you, yeah, you took, you talk from a place of a scar rather than a wound. So, so are, I have stories like I have stories that I'm not yet comfortable talking in a very mm -hmm. public context because I'm still myself processing, trying to figure out what they mean. Also, they're quite sensitive in their nature. So it's it's about being really mindful in which audience I share them. I share them in a couple of small contexts, or but those those I'm still working with. And then there's other stories, like for example, you know, I'm dyslexic and uh, I had a really tough time at school. I was bullied by my school teachers on a regular basis because I couldn't read out loud properly. I couldn't spell and I couldn't do maths. You know, I was held back a year, which in France is a real stigma. And then I was eventually kicked out of conventional education. So I had this real chip on my shoulder that I'm dumb, right? Like I'm stupid and I'm not worthy because only those who can spell properly are worthy of love and acceptance and, and a place in society. I used to be so ashamed of that story that I didn't tell anybody that I had been held back or that I was dyslexic. Like I just try, I, I never got any special aid ever because I wasn't diagnosed as a kid. It was the eighties in France, the archaic educational system. And B, I had this kind of idea that like, if people know they're, they're going to think lesser of me. So I don't want anybody to know anyway. So I just went through the whole education without any, any special help. Um, and I don't say this as kind of like, Oh, look how great I am, but rather it, it was like the shame that I carried. And I talk about this in the opening chapter of the book. It, it, I'm, I'm at this event. It's November. I'm launching the November foundation in France for the first time. I'm in this dingy bar in the middle of Paris and there's like a smell of like beer, you know, festering on like the wood and like this rock and roll memorabilia on the, on the walls. And I'm giving this talk. There's a small group. There's like a few partners, a few potential fundraisers. There's a bit of media there and press and some random guys who walked in, I guess, from the bar. And during the Q and A, this journalist asked me and she said, um, this all sounds great and stuff, but why did, why did you, why did you want to launch November in France? And I remember like in that moment, again, I had the choice to say this kind of like vanilla beige answer, which would have been safe and kind of distance. And what I could tell the truth, which was in 2009, I went through a really dark time and I really struggled with my mental health because I went through a really bad breakup with my girlfriend. I, I used to live in Peru at the time, went back to my parents. My granddad had terminal cancer and died. Um, I quit my job. Like it was just like a really tough time. 
And when I came across Movember, it gave me a sense of meaning and purpose. Like I could grow a mustache and look silly and be part of a community. I had a name, a Mobro. I was working towards a good cause. I could connect with other people to kind of do this funny thing. Like it just gave me a real, like a new breath of fresh air. That's why I was so passionate about launching the foundation in France and across Europe. And so in that moment, I answered that question to the journalist truthfully. I said, my story in public. And, you know, I say this now very easily, but back then it was like really scary. It was scary because my mum had told me, and I talk about this in the book, but my mum, when I told my mum in 2009 that I think I'm going through maybe some depression or some some sort of thing, she said, don't tell anybody. Mm. Not even Dennis. Dennis is my best friend, right? Not even Dennis. I was like, why? Because if you tell anybody, no one will ever employ you again. And I, and we've talked about this mum since, and she's read the book and she said she's sorry. And I, she came from a place of love and care. You're a parent, so you know that sometimes we'll do things for the best interest of our kids without maybe thinking about the impact that it might have on them, right? And so she said this because she wanted to protect me. But me, I clammed up. I was like, oh my gosh, if anybody knows this, no one's going to love me and want me. So I can't talk to anybody. So fast forward to that bar in Paris. I say the truth and she's making notes in a notepad and nodding. And I answer a couple more questions. I kind of, I was a bit like almost vulnerability hangover, you know, when you go like, did I really just say that? And at the end, there's a few people coming up to me and this guy comes up to me. His name was Matt. And, and he says, uh, look, I came just to find out more information, but I got so much more. Like hearing your story, like made me realize that I wasn't the only one going through that kind of stuff. And I never really heard another guy openly talk about that in a public setting. So thank you, because I'm really, really looking forward to take part. And I'll get my friends to take part. And I just remember going, oh, oh, wow. Like, so sharing this part of me didn't repulse. And it could, it could have repulsed some people, and I'm okay with that. Like, you've got to be okay with, like, it's almost, mar- we call it Marmite marketing. You're going to attract some fans. You're going to repulse some others. And and that's okay. So anyway, that was a long, long-winded answer just to say that um, it, I saw the power of, of how sharing a personal story can, can have a really conducive connection with your audience in a deep and meaningful way. Okay. So I, I think a lot of people, when they hear share your personal story or you think of motivational speakers, I don't know. On this podcast, we've had Chris Norton, who got paralyzed playing American football. We've had Josh Shipp, who was kicked out of like 14 foster homes. Mm. Dramatic stories they have perfected the telling of. Mm. They are scars, not open wounds. I think it's easy for people to feel like, oh, gosh, well, I've never been depressed. I, my parents loved me. What yeah. do I talk about? What's my story yeah. look like? So. Do you, do you have tips for people whose stories yes, are not I do. dramatic? I do. And actually, that's one of the 10 story blockers that I list in my book. One of them is like, I don't have a Hollywood story. So what's the point? Yeah. So um, can, I, can I do a little exercise with you? Is that okay? Yeah. Is that cool? Okay. So what's one of your favorite films? Fight Club. Fight Club. Cool. Do you remember the first time you saw it? Yes. How did it make you feel? I was energized by the creativity. I mm. was excited by the ending because it's mm. a bit of a twist. Yeah. I just, I, I loved it. Yeah. Yeah, you loved it, right? Like it made you feel a certain way and, and you loved it. Cool. How many times would you say you've seen that film since the first time you saw it? Oh, at least 45. At least Random 45. Random number, 45. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> at least 45. Cool. So, and you, st- and you still get excited when you see it? Yes, for yeah. sure. There are a couple parts that like, in my day-to-day life, I and I don't think of them every day, but there are a couple yeah. parts I'm like, oh, this is the this is the Raymond K. Hester part. <laughs> Raymond <laughs> okay. K. Hessel. Yeah. So now imagine if I told you, cool, Mike, that's awesome, but now you're gonna have to sit down and watch Fight Club not once, not twice, but a hundred times back to back. In fact, a thousand times back to back without any pauses. How do you think you'd feel about the film? Well, I'd I'd be anticipating being really tired. Mm-hmm. And maybe maybe you'd be bored. Maybe you just wouldn't be as excited as you were the first yeah, 50 eventually. times, right? Yes. Eventually. Cool. It's the same thing with your life. It's the same thing with your story. Basically, you're so close to your story and you've seen it so many times that to you, it's not interesting. You can't see any of the parts that are interesting or entertaining or valuable or meaningful to anybody else because it's just been repeating in your head so many times. Whereas someone who hears it for the first time or sees it for the first time, a bit like you the first time you saw Fight Club, will be able to go, wait, that's really cool. And you may go, really? But no, that's what everyone used to do. No, no one used to do that. I have yet to meet someone who hasn't got part of them that's interesting. 
You just got to find mm-hmm. what that thing is. And what I find is that most people don't go down that road because they don't see themselves as having one of these Hollywood stories that they didn't go through big capital T trauma, right? But if you made it through life this far, I can guarantee you that you've got some ups and downs. And that, that means you've got some lessons you can share. There's some, like one of the biggest reasons why I wanted to write this book was to try and help people connect the dots as to why we do what we do. Right. So often when we're in business, whether we're, you know, a speaker or a coach, but you know, also CEOs and founders of companies, we we might think that we've ended up here accidentally. Maybe there's one in a thousand people I've met that might have just like total fluke. But if you dig a little bit deeper and you go through the process of unpacking your story and finding those nuggets, you'll find a story that you'll go like, oh my, that's why. You know, I used to run workshops around this, and I remember this one particular case. He, he, this guy started this branding agency and we were going through, he was like, you know, I've got, he, he literally volunteered and said, look, I don't see how my story is relevant to anything I do now. It's like, okay, cool. Let's, let's go through it. So we, we, we do this exercise called the river of life in the book and he goes to the river of life and we, we kind of unpack a few moments. And at one point he tells me this memory when he was around six years old, five, six years old, his dad took him back to his studio. His dad was a photographer and he goes to his dad's studio and he wanted to show him that, like what he did for work. And he walks in and suddenly sees this creative buzz. Like he didn't really know the vocabulary for it, but he's like, people are running around, there's music, there's lights, there's like all these computers. And he's like, he's, he's mesmerized. And suddenly on the desk, he sees this thing. He's like, what is that? And the designer looks down and, and, and she looks at him. And she goes, oh, that's pretty cool. Huh? That's called a mouse. It was like one of the first Apple, like iMacs or whatever, like with a little you know, mouse on the side. And he thought it was the most beautiful thing ever. And he said, look, it's hel- it helps me to do my work efficiently. But that impact of what that Mac looked like on him lost this huge impression. And I said to him, I said, so that's interesting, right? Because you do branding. Am I right? He goes, yeah. So you help people like create the best first impression for their clients when they first come there see their logo. Their branding is like, yeah. And so you want them to experience the same thing that you did when you saw that mouse when the first time he's like, He's like, oh my God, yeah, 100%. <laughs> and it clicked. There was like this light bulb moment. And he goes, that's exactly right. That's the moment that... So I think we all have some of these moments, right? Are usually between six and 12, 13 years old that will shape us in some way and that we can reconnect. And all it is I'm saying is there's a way for you to learn how to be intentional and in how you share parts of your story to land a message and better connect with others. Hmm. How do you know... Because every story has a, a long version, mm-hmm. which is probably too long usually. Mm-hmm. Short version, lots of details, little details. Do I add this twist? Is this part necessary? How do you, how do you figure out how long it should be? I think it. So again, if you look at the metrics that I've developed, the framework, you've got to look at what platform and which context you're speaking mm-hmm. on. So. On a podcast, it's a little bit more generous, right? You've got a little bit more time to unpack a story. When you're talking in front of an audience, you've got 45-minute keynote, you're not going to spend 10 minutes talking about your backstory. You might share a couple of stories here and then. If you're speaking on a panel and you've got 30 seconds to introduce yourself, it's going to be a very different story. Yeah, it's a one-sentence story. It's a one-sentence story. Yeah. Yeah, it's a one story. It's a one I went from story. here to here. That's yeah. it, really quick, right? And you and you have to be, what people don't get is that they think, so most people think, but Mark, I've got all these amazing stories. I've got to tell them all. I'm like, but for whose sake? For your sake or for the audience? Because if you take it from the audience perspective, they don't need to hear all your stories. They need to hear the right story that's going to help them understand the message you're trying to put across, period. And that can be really hard. So the metaphor I use for people is when you go shopping, Right back when we used to still go in the high streets and shop and hopefully people still go and support local, you know, independent stores. Um, but you go and there's a window, right? You see the window display. Does the shop put every single item they own in display? No. They'll curate a few little items depending on seasons. It gets you curious. You go inside and then you see all the other amazing things they have. And I think stories is a little bit like that. Like give a little bit, a little bit of morsel something that people want to find out more about and get them curious and excited enough that they ask you for more. Hmm, that's good. What are, so I, I think we should name some of our favorite personal stories that we've heard. Hmm. I'm not talking like a 300 page book. I mean, I mean, from stage or on a pod, on a podcast, hmm. I'll stall for a second so you can <laughs> spring. Yeah. I mean, I've, I actually, you know, I know. So there's, there's obviously there's, um, there's different levels of, of kind of people you're looking at, right? But I actually think that, so my friend Daniel Priestley does a really good job at using personal story 
because I've seen him now because, you know, I, I mentor one of his, um, in one of his companies, I mentor one of the groups. And, uh, and I've seen him do this a bunch of times. And so I've seen him doing it really well, depending on which audience he's talking to, depending on what messages, he'll use like a really short story of like why he fell in love with entrepreneurship. And it's when he was a kid, he came home, his house had burnt, but some stuff had survived. And his dad was like, look, if you want to sell those items, you can keep all the money. He's like, oh, amazing. So he managed to salvage a bunch of stuff, set up a table outside and uh, neighbors came in and tried to, you know, look at p- purchase. And this one man came up to him and said, how much for the toaster? And he said something, I don't know, $10, $20. And the man looked at his dad and said, will you give it to me for 10? And his dad looked at him and said, I'm not the one to negotiate. He's the one in charge. And in that moment, he realized the power that he had from taking your destiny in your own hands by building your own business. I mean, so he uses that story. That's just like one story, but he'll have like all these other little stories. So I think he does that really well. I think Lewis Howe's story is a, is a really short one as well. Like, you know, he used to be a pro athlete, gets injured, staying on his sister's couch, miserable. His sister's like, you got to pay some rent now. And he's like, oh my God, what am I going to do? And then, you know, one thing leads to the next. He launches a podcast and, and the rest is history. He's built an eight-figure media company. But um, those, yeah. those, I think, are stories that are can be told in a really, you know, really, really short way. Like E.T. movie, you could summarize like friends get friends home. You know, so you can you can make stories as short as long as you want. What it's interesting. You? I thought you were going to go. So some of my, I thought you were going to say Scott Harrison. That I think is the most. Oh, yeah. That's oh the most God. effective but, but, personal story I've seen in a presentation. Yeah. Well, okay. So that's, that's, so that's different. Um, Why? Scott Harrison, no, because Scott, Scott, Scott Harrison is actually one of my favorite personal story tellers for business. He's actually in my book. And um, the reason why I love Scott's story so much is that he represents everything I believe in that I try and put in this book, which is if you own your shadow, if you own the parts of your story that you're deeply ashamed of, that you're deeply afraid of, that you think would make you the least lovable person in humanity, but you find a way to to use them for for, for a greater good, then you're unstoppable. And and when you see him talk and share the stories, like you would get, yeah, he was an alcoholic, you know, mm-hmm. drug addict and sex and spiritually bankrupt and all this kind of stuff. And he goes off and raises millions for like this really worthy cause. And so that for me is a perfect example of like, you can share your personal story in a context that would have such a high stake if it went wrong, which is charity fundraising and see it work. So yeah, thanks for reminding me because that, yeah, by far that, that I think is the most um, pertinent example of the message of the book. And that, I, I haven't timed it, but I'm guessing that takes definitely 10 minutes, probably 15 for him to yeah go through in his keynote to say the whole yeah to say the whole problem i would say at least 10 minutes if you're going to go through like my mom like the story about his mom and how she had you know health conditions and yeah it's really i mean it's beautifully crafted so i have a general question about storytelling and then uh i've got a couple last questions for you yes sir but the presentation is meant to be about the audience Mm. and you and a lot of people start with the personal story i'm mark in 2009 i was depressed and Mm. that's the starting point Mm. obviously you don't have to insert your personal story first words out of your mouth but why does that work if the presentation is about the audience so there's two things in that in that question because um one of them is yes so if you think about your audience as the most important element of your stories and your message and your key presentation, then you reverse engineer what you're going to say, depending on, on what you want your audience to know, right? Think or, or do differently as a result of it. So that's, again, that's going to determine which stories you're going to share. So I would not go into a talk and start talking about, I was 2009, I used to be in a bad state. If it's not relevant to the audience I'm talking to, or if it's not relevant to the message that I'm going to be talking that day, I just won't in that particular moment, but I will, use another story. So I'll give you an example. Um, again, one of the really neat things about one of the formulas I kind of came up with in the book, which is you can use one story, but have multiple endings, to that same story. So you can use the same story, but mm-hmm. land a different message, right? Which I think is super cool mm-hmm. because then you kind of understand that it's almost like a Swiss army knife. You can have stories like, like Swiss army knives. So you can go like, so I'll give you an example. When I was a kid, so you know that story that I told you about when I was a kid, I used to be bullied by my school teachers and held back and blah, 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 right? That story, I can use that story in a corporate setting when I talk about culture. Because the reason why I would share that story is that very early, as I would say, I would kick off by just saying like, I would put a picture of me as a kid, 
right? And I'd go, I was a really happy kid. Most people would describe me that way. Chirpy, you know, creative. But actually, it turns out I was living hell. And I was going through this, na 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 I would go through this, like a quick version of the story. And I would say, the reason why I bring that up is that from a very young age, I understood what it felt like to not belong in a culture that's meant to tell you like to be who you can be, but really they want you to mold you into a shape. And today that's what I want to talk about. How do we create a culture where people feel seen, heard, and loved? So I would, I would use a personal story. If it landed the, the bridge connecting point to the, the bigger message, if that makes sense. But I would never just go like, hey, here's a story about me. So you love me and like me. And now let's go into like this completely random topic. Like, does that make sense? Yeah. Or you, you could even not even start with a personal story. Like I've had talks where I would just start with a question or I would start with like a disrupting kind of, you know, a sentence. But then I would add some story at some point. Like, for example, like my most popular talk I gave last year on the back of, of, of doing your program, which was excellent, by the way. And if people haven't heard the amazing testimonial I gave you, please go and check it out. If there are ever show notes to this podcast episode, I'm sure they'll be there at some point. Um, but no, but for real. But so that talk that I gave at an energy company, the whole message, right, was about like how we all need to find our own voices and step up to our own leadership capabilities, no matter where we are in the organization, that we're all leaders. It doesn't matter what your job title says. You have the ability to impact the lives of those around you, right? Like that was kind of like the gist of the message. And I really hesitated with this. And I remember when I did the mock version with you and, and um, Robin and you gave me this really great tip of like actually change that story, put it at the end. Do you remember that? Yeah. And so I finished with the personal story and the personal story, and I'll just say like a 30 second version of it was, um, we, we moved into this new house, it was a rental. And one morning, our cleaning lady points to the ceiling and she says, have you seen this crack? And I'm thinking, oh yeah, I'll probably contact the landlord at some point. Um, it's probably nothing. And I go upstairs and next thing you know, I hear this thundering, crashing noise. The whole ceiling collapses. And I hear that cleaner screaming like, I told you, I told you. What you didn't know is that this is a Tuesday morning and usually my son, my two-year-old son at the time, would have been playing there. So he would have died 100%. It just happened that my partner, for whatever reason that morning, decided to put him in nursery and not have him back at home. Like it's one of these freakish things, right? So I share that story to say, never underestimate cracks in a culture because what, so what looks like a crack could actually be someone's life down the road. And you don't want to be the person who says, I knew there was a crack, but I didn't do anything about it. So I finished with that story, right? Like I finished because you remember you gave me that. It's like, I told you a lot about, you know, this, but I haven't really talked about my partner. Yes. That's kind of how I, I made that joke in. Um, but that's a great example of like, I, I used a personal story at the end to land, but it's always, always, for the sake of something, right? It's not just like, love me, like me, yeah. pity me. It's more like, let me just say this thing so you understand why I'm really passionate about this thing or why this thing is really important for you to get. I uh, When I was working with Laura Belgray a few years ago, she's got this awesome, awesome story of being bullied. Her best friend from, I think, middle school betrayed her. And we, we realized that it was better at the end a lot of times in a longer story is better at the end when you've won over the audience yeah. versus the beginning when they're like, this story is cool, but like, where are we how going? long is this going to take? Like, what's, yeah. this, what's this yeah. presentation about? I, you know what else it made me think of? So Robin in our class, shout out Robin Laird. You're tired of me talking about this story. But Robin has this incredible story from when she was in high school. I'll try to do it off the top of my head. I'm going to get the details slightly wrong because mm. off the top of my head. But Robin's got this awesome story. Robin uh, was running track. She was pole vault. If I remember correctly, this was to win the state title. She needed to clear a certain height. Last one, giving herself pep talk, deep breath, run, 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 plant the pole into the, I forget what it's called, like the little yeah, the hole. pivot thing, <laughs> whatever that is. Plant the, plant the pole in the hole, up, over, clears the bar. Oh my gosh, we just won state. Celebration. Everyone's going nuts. And then out of the corner of her eye. She sees the opposing coach go over to the ref. And then the ref walks over to her and looks at her hand. And Robin gets disqualified because she was wearing a friendship bracelet, which I forget what it was called, but it was like technically considered jewelry. And it was according to the guidelines, no athletes were allowed to wear any jewelry. Yeah. 
So we told that story in class. Like that was in that was on ESPN, Sports Illustrated. That was one of those. Can you believe oh, this? I coach didn't did realize. That? I didn't yeah, realize yeah, yeah. it got that much coverage. <laughs> yeah, Google Robin Laird pole vault. What was interesting is afterwards, I feel like we all had a different way she could use that story. Yeah. So that could be her yeah. entrepreneurship. That's the last time that I listened to the rules. Mm. It it could be about there's the heart of the rule versus what it's actually about. There could be. And I don't know if this is actually true about Robin, but that's what led me to be so detail oriented. So yeah. it's well, that's worth why I no, the time. no longer have any friends because friendship bracelets cost me though. You know, <laughs> they, they, but they, there's so many. I, I, yeah, exactly. You could you could depending on who you're talking to, the message you're trying to land, you could turn, you could pivot the ending. Love it. All right, Mark. Two last questions for you. So I'd love to hear a Mark Laroust speaking tip. And that does not have to be about stories, although it can mm. be. And then lastly, I would like you to tell the story of your book, Breaking the Internet. <laughs> okay. So um, a speaking tip for people listening. So this is going to be really unsexy. I'm just going to tell you. And this is what's made me a much better speaker. So as I said, I used to wing it. I used to just kind of like wing it more or less, but bullet points and just hope for the best. I've since realized that if I want to deliver, be a professional speaker, which means that I finish on time, I deliver on what I promise, and I, I and I and I hopefully land an impact where people want more. I I actually have to time myself, so I write out my entire speech. I don't learn it by heart, but I write my entire speech out, and I've been doing this since TEDx. Most people don't want to do this because it's like I don't want to learn it by heart, but it's like no, I get it. But you've got write it all out. Then read it out loud and time yourself. You're going to go, first of all, you're going to realize that you write the way that you think you talk, but you don't. Mm -hmm. So you, you, that's going to change the way you write your talk because you're going to talk as if you're writing an essay or a marketing brochure, but that doesn't work, right? So do that, time yourself, time yourself. And then what I do is that I will have bullet points for each section. So I will have, for example, a talk, a 45-minute keynote. I might have like three different sections of the talk. And I'll have a few bullet points and I'll have a few cards and then I'll just look at the cards and that will set me off and I'll time myself. That is, I think if anyone listening to this, if you wrote your talk out and you timed it, you'd be within the 5% top speakers, I think. You know, I've seen, I'm not naming people. I've seen people on stages where I'm like, what? Seriously? Like, this is crazy. Like they haven't, clearly they haven't prepared. They're winging it. They're, they haven't timed. They're like, oh, um, Five more minutes? Is that, is that okay? Five more minutes. Yeah. Uh, so where was I? So I'm sitting right. on this branch and you're just going, but that means that all of the speakers behind, everyone's going to have to either cut short or, and I've been in a situation, I've been in a situation where I'm in a company offsite and I'm, I'm pumped. I'm ready. I've got an hour keynote done. I get a tap on the shoulder because I'm looking at my watch going, they, they're a bit behind time now, aren't we? I get a tap on the shoulder. It's the CEO. I try to do that. He goes, yeah, so we're running about an hour late, so you're going to have to cut your talk down to 20 minutes. Cool. And I'm like, oh, wow. So I had to go on stage three minutes later and cut my one hour talk into a 20-minute talk live as I'm editing, as I'm talking, going, which section am I going to jump? Which part am I going to stop? Which stories am I going to drop? You don't, you don't want that. But if you've timed it, you know which yeah. sections will take what time. This, this section takes about this length, yeah. this section, so yeah. I, can, I can do that. I can just cut that one out, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that it's so funny when you see that from speakers. I I can think of one guy in particular, fairly accomplished speaker, definitely an Enneagram seven. I think sevens and threes are probably the most likely to wing it. Where okay, <laughs> I'm a I've three. Got... I'm a three, so I would I would say that that's yeah. true. But then I be, I became too much like I want to care about what I do. <laughs> well, I remember this guy. You know, I have five points for you to make. First point takes forty two minutes. Yeah, <laughs> he gets. <laughs> He gets the little blinking red light and he's just like, ah, here's point two, three, four, five. Like just click, 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 click. Cool. I used to be that guy. Yeah. I used to be, that, be guy. that guy. And and your course really helped me, really helped me to kind of go less is more. I knew less is more, but less is really more. And like, feeling that less is more is different. Yes. You, that, one it, of yeah. the best tips I got from your course, I hope you don't mind me sharing this, but yeah. it was like, if you're going to do a 45 minute keynote, have a 35 to 40 minute keynote. Yeah. Don't no longer because you're most likely going to be a few minutes late because the guest is going to introduce the host is going to introduce you. You might have a few pauses if you make a few jokes. They might get a question, but like just have a 35 minute keynote for a 45 minute keynote. And I remember just going, but that feels like I'm cheating. And actually, yeah. 
spaciousness is so powerful. Like Obama, I think, is one of the great orators of our our century. And if I listen to him, he, he pauses, he, he calms. Like whatever your political penchant are for for the man, but it just the way he talks are just it's just very compelling. It's a lot less stressful getting on stage when you've timed it at 37 minutes for 45 yeah. and you know that you don't have to race through it. You can, you can pause, you can acknowledge mm-hmm. something in mm-hmm. the audience that it, yes, sir. everyone, you will, <laughs> you will thank Mark. You will thank that me through Mark, I guess, if you, if you just give yourself a little leeway. All right. Mm-hmm. Last thing, how Mark Lewis book broke the internet. <laughs> yeah. So I'll make this a really short version. I'll make, try to make this the shortest version. So, I had, when I signed my book deal with Hachette, which is one of the kind of big publishers in the world, um, I had these big Time dreams. Out. Hachette? Is this like a British versus American thing? I thought it was Hatchet. No, it's a French. It's cool. It's a French company called Hachette. That's how you Stop pronounce it. it properly. Oh my gosh. Okay. So in English, you say Hachette. We're learning. That's how you pronounce Sorry, it. Sorry, keep going. <laughs> Hachette. <laughs> you know what? I was on a podcast with Eric Ream the other day from uh, Rise Above Chaos. And he's got his family of French originally from, from a place called Reims. Reims in French. But he'd be calling, he'd been calling it his entire life like Reims or something <laughs> like that. And I was like, yeah, it's, it's Reims, mate. But anyway, um, shout out to Eric. So I wanted a bestseller. Like I was like, I had this ego thing. I want to have a uh, you know New York Times equivalent bestseller in the UK, Sunday Times bestseller. Problem was, I still didn't have a publication date. I still didn't have a book cover. And I still didn't have a book three weeks out of the official publication date. So that wasn't going to happen. I was chasing my publisher. I just didn't have the final product. I'm going crazy. So I'm thinking, right, so I can't hit the Sunday Times bestseller. What can I do next? An Amazon number one bestseller. I know what you're thinking. Is it really that, you know, worthy of the cause? I mean, most people can get an Amazon number one bestseller, but here's the catch. Most people who can are self-published, which means that they can change the price of the book from $14.99 to 99p or 99 cents. And then they can go for like a really like sub sub kind of niche category, like left-handed dyslexic entrepreneurs, right? right. <laughs> and uh, and then they then they then they get as many people to buy the book in a short amount of period and they get number one. Because I have a publishing deal and because I had no intention of doing those two things anyway, we were going to keep the full price, $14.99, and I was going to go for like entrepreneurship and business and communication skills category. Some of the toughest one. So I set off with telling all my community, everyone saying, look, I've been told that Amazon basically calculates the book on like this period of time. So can you please go on this day on the 8th of December, 2022 and just buy, buy copies. Now I'll put a caveat. I put a bonus section. So depending on how many books you bought, you would unlock a certain number of, of um, perks, right? So if you bought one to 10 books, you got my eternal gratitude and you got access to like this online thing. And if you bought 10 to 20, you get the gist, right? Like 30, you got a you, personal coaching from me, all this stuff. So D-Day happens with Thursday, 22nd. Uh, so Thursday, 8th of December, 2022. I wake up, I'm still in my PJs. I'm excited. I'm starting to text people. I'm starting to call people. I'm emailing. I've, I've already lost about 20% of my mailing list by now because I've spammed everybody for the past two weeks, right? <laughs> Building up. I've done a, a book trailer, by the way. I've, done, like, I've just gone all out. My publisher's starting to say, hey, numbers are coming in. It's looking good. You know, it's looking great. Really good, Mark. And I'm like, yes, yes. I can see the numbers kind of coming up on Amazon. It's refreshing every kind of hour. And I'm like, okay, um, we're going to do this. It's 11.45. My publisher says, like, we're on a good roll. Keep keep going. 12.24, I think it is. I get a text from a friend called Gemma. She goes, hey, Mark, I can't seem to, uh, I can't seem to order the book. And I was like, Oh, that must be like, like what? It, like, it must be like a glitch or something. Meanwhile, I got a bunch of emails saying people it's sold out. I can't buy it. Like sold out. People think, oh, it's a good thing to sell out on your launch date. Well, yes and no. Yes, because it sounds good. No, because it's a catastrophe logistically. <laughs> but also, let's be honest. I'm going to be real here. Amazon don't order like a thousand copy of your new book, right? As a first time publisher, they've probably had a few hundred copies. But they go by 11:30, they've sold out. That's not a problem because you can normally still order a book. Here's the problem: you can't. Amazon has disabled the button to order the book. I am now getting inundated by emails, DMs, messages from people saying, Mark, I can't order the book. What's going on? And I'm like just looking at this going, oh, no. It's a bit like if you had launched a space rocket into space and you're seeing it go and everybody's cheering and it's flying. And then suddenly at 11 or 12, 40, whatever it was, it comes crashing down. I am trying to call my publisher, telling what's going on. What's the, we've never seen this. This has never happened. We're sending emergency stock to Amazon. They should hopefully, 
And I'm like, this is peak launch day. What are you talking about? Like, how could this have been going on? So we go back and forth. I'm ready to cry. You know, we have book launch day that evening, by the way. So I'm supposed to pick myself up, write a speech, and then go and prepare this huge evening where everybody's coming over and celebrating my book. Around two o'clock, I get, a, I get a message, basically. So this is what happened. Because so many people came to buy the book at the same time and people were ordering 5, 10, 15, 20 books, whatever at a time, Amazon thought that it was an attack from bots. <laughs> <laughs> and so Amazon shut down my page. Why <laughs> shut down my page? Yeah. So we crashed. And I say that's a joke, the book that crashed the internet. They, we crashed. We crashed Amazon page. So they, they, we couldn't. So nobody could order until like the next day. So we missed, we missed out on number one Amazon bestseller, but I went into the book launch with some good news. I said, guys, we missed the number one bestselling spot and I was really gutted, but we made it in top 10 in three different categories. We, we did number four in business presentation skills, entrepreneurship. We did six and eight in business life. Um, so the moral of the story, kids, is uh, make sure you tell your publisher on Amazon to stock up on your launch day. And if you're going to do any promotional campaigns to get big bulk orders, let them know that it's not a bot. Uh, from spyware Russians uh, or whatever it is, and uh, and it's actually really human beings ordering. So that sucked, but at the same time, it's a, it's a cool story that I tell now about about my book, Glow in the Dark, the book that sold so fast, <laughs> Amazon itself thought it was bots. Amazing. <laughs> I did I did a lot of work for Chick Fil A last year, and I always one of the things that it, I did to try to minimize decision making. I just always wore the same shirt. So by like the third time that I showed up in the same shirt, they're like, you always wear the shirt. I'm like, yeah, no, this is a minimized decision-making, blah, blah, blah. For my, for my last session with them, the, the head of the department decided to play a prank on me that they were all going to wear that shirt. So she, she, she finds, she finds this little mom and pop place in, I want to say like Michigan or Missouri or something. Her whole team, so there's like 35 people, they all order that shirt in different sizes. <laughs> the mom and pop store stopped making them and started calling people like, we've been getting a disproportionate amount of orders for the shirt. Is this a real order? <laughs> and then the best part, that trip... I don't remember why this happened, but that trip just packed for me instead of myself. I think it just must have been trying to save time. And she did not pack that shirt. Oh, no. So show up on presentation day. They're like, why are you wearing gray? (laughs) (laughs) It's on my Instagram story. Mark, this has been so fun. I love seeing your career. I love seeing you grow. And it it was a pleasure to have you in Speech Club. For people to learn more about you, to buy your book and not be mistaken for a bot, where, what, what sites should they go to? What, what social media? How should people learn more about you? So um, head over to glowinthedarkbook.com. From there, you'll find all the information about the book and access bonuses, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then I'm at Mark Roost on all social media platforms. I'm, I'll be honest, I'm on LinkedIn and Instagram pretty much exclusively. I've kind of given up on most other platforms. That's kind of the two places you can find me. LinkedIn and Instagram at Mark LaRousse. That's M-A-R-K-L-E-R-U-S-T-E. And on his Instagram, scroll back to World Cup time to see. He's half British, half French. <laughs> scroll back to see who he was rooting for in that game. Oh, God. Let's not talk about the World Cup, Mike. <laughs> I, have a, I have a final speaking tip since we're on the World Cup. I read, I read a really interesting study about penalty kicks right before the World Cup, and it... it came to play in your game which is or your match sorry let me sounds hmm. like a football fan i'm gonna get the numbers slightly wrong here but i think the on average penalty kicks are converted at like 78 percent, i think but here's what's really interesting when and this i think pertains to speaking actually when someone is kicking with the chance to lose it goes down to, I want to say 68. <laughs> and when they're kicking with the chance to win, shoots up to 92. Mm. And I bring that up because I actually think there's like a pretty good speaking comparison between someone who's taken the stage confident 
ready to wow the crowd. They know it's good. They've been run through things. And someone who's taking the stage just hoping to not die. Yeah. Yeah. So that's my I like that. loosely tied in speaking tip for you. Thanks for having me, brother. This has been a great podcast. I know I always say that, but I love hanging out with Mark. Someday we'll meet in person. The Best Speech Podcast. I've been your host, Mike Pacquion. This has been politely to medium edited by Leisha Otieno, just depending on how long she wants to make it. And the music you're about to hear is by Jonah Ramey. Check us out, bestspeech.co. And until next time, my friends, do good things out there.